I've asked them to put the smaller pulpit down here today because for today at least and maybe next week I'm going to do, this is going to be like a classroom we're coming into. We're still talking about the subject of worship and we've been looking at, and don't, don't need to turn there because I want to save the time, in John chapter 4 is kind of our <clears throat> model, our picture because it's Jesus sitting by a well in Sychar and a woman comes out to draw water <clears throat> and she draws the water and Jesus asks her for a drink of water. And we're looking at this from the point of view that this is a woman who was going about her everyday affairs, not, having an un- not understanding the opportunity that she had because she was literally sitting down with God that day. She was having an encounter with the living God, but she didn't recognize Him because He came dressed <clears throat> in human flesh. And we're using this as an example for us every time we come to church. We also have the opportunity to meet with God. We just heard this wonderful song sung by Ola, about what makes us different. And I was thinking as we were listening to that song, it's true, what makes us different from, every, from religion, what makes us tr- different from everyone else that professes to know and love God is the presence of God in our life. Every other religion, every religion is man's idea about God and how God sees man. Every, other, every religion is, is man's idea about what God requires of us. But the true and living God did it differently. Whereas religion is trying to bring man up to God, to bring us, to make us better, good enough that we can come up to God, Christianity is God saying, you can't ever be good enough to come up to me, but because of what I'm like, I've come down to you. And because I've come down to you and given myself to you, I've now enabled you to come up to me, me, because I've made you like me. I've made you a son and daughter of me. That's beyond what anything man could think of. Man's religion was always based on making me better. And as he was singing that song, I was thinking, what makes us different, what's critical for our difference, is that because religion is based on man's idea, God's not present in that. So they have to convince other people by convincing them of their good ideas. And they do it sometimes with emotion, sometimes with theology, whatever it is. But what makes the church of the living God so different is what what He's designed us to do is to impact people's lives, not through our efforts, not by what we know, not by what we even do, but it's what gets God's presence in us and among us. That's what makes you different. We're learning that on Wednesday nights. That's why we're, we're, we're to live a, a, a life that's separate, not isolated, but separate. Because when we blend into the world, we're denying who we are and who He is in us. But it's the presence of God. And as we've studied Moses, we've seen that when the children of Israel, when God came down on the mountain, and this is picking up where we're studying now, God comes down on that mountain and God wants to be with us because that's what we're looking at. What we're studying is the verse in John chapter 4 where Jesus says, there's coming a day and it now is when my father is going to, is, then, then, then he's going to long for, desire true worshipers. And we're looking at it from the perspective of what God desires when we come together. God has an agenda when we come together. It's the desire of His heart. When we come here, it's not just to check off that Susie was here and Joe was here and Sally was here. God's been waiting for this opportunity. And I know we can interact with God throughout the week, and we should be, because it changes and enhances our experience with Him here. But this is when His family comes together. 
Now, we've been away for two weeks and missed one Sunday. And boy, I could feel it. I walked in here and I could feel the strength of the body when I walked in that door. I could feel the strength of the body when I walked in that door. And that strength was brought in by you and brought in by me. It's when we come together, because it's God's presence in you and God's presence in me, collectively together is a greater presence. And, what makes, and so we've been looking at what God's heart is. God has a desire. And we need to see this from God's perspective because that means we don't have to talk God into something. This is God's idea. Worship is God's idea. It's what He longs for, He desires out of the relationship that He has with us because it will be an experience of that relationship at another level of reality that will change you. It will change you. It will change us. And God's plan is it will change our cities and our towns and our places of work. And it's not by what you do or what I do. It's God's presence in us that people begin to pick up and sense but that presence has to be flowing out of us. And so we've looked at it, we saw that, that Jesus said, my Father longs for true worshipers, those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He longs for them. He desires them. We went back and we saw in the garden, we saw how God created man and God satisfied the desire of His heart. And he walked with that man and that woman in the cool of the day and their sin, their rebellion, their disobedience created an incredible separation which is part of what we're looking at. And we've studied the fact that the rest of the Bible is a story of God restoring back that intimacy, that communion together with him to satisfy the desire of his heart. We saw that he decided to do this by having a people that belonged to him. So he chose a man who was a pagan, Abram. And he, made a, he, he called him out and entered into a blood covenant with him so that he could give him confidence of what God wanted to do in his life. And God's plan was that through that man and that woman who were incapable of producing a child, God wanted to create a nation of people that belonged to him so that he could be among them. And God brought them down into Egypt in order to take care of them because God will take care of you if you follow him. If you allow God to, He will provide for you. He does know what's coming. He knew there was a famine coming. And so God brought them down there through a man named Joseph in a series of events that didn't look like it was God working in their lives, but it was God working in their lives. Romans 8.26 says, For God is at work to, to, to both to, to, to will and to... No, it's not 8.26 at all. God causes all, everything to work together for good for those who love God, for those who love God, for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. God is at work in your life. And if you will cooperate with Him, He's able to protect you and provide for you for things ahead of time before they even happen because that's what He's like. He's watching over you to take care of you. And He did it with Israel. He brought them down into Egypt and we saw that they overstayed their need to be there. And they ended up in bondage. And when they cried out to God, God delivered them and brought them out. And He had a deliverer, Moses, prepared for them. And we saw that when He brought them out and they came into the, into the wilderness of Sinai, that after they were there for, I think it was three months, God brought them down to the base of a mountain. Because in Exodus 19, verse 17, God says, I want to come down and meet with my people. And he came down and the people were afraid and they ran away. And they told Moses, no, you go talk to him and come tell us what he has to say. And, and there's, a, there's a whole story there and, and where there's a wrestling. And God, Moses, at one point the people refused to go into the promised land. And God says, that's it, I've had it with him. I'm going to withdraw and I'm going to start with another people. In the meantime, they created an idol to worship, a golden calf to worship. 
And God was ticked off at them then and said, I'm going to fry them on the spot. And Moses interceded for them and taught God out of destroying them. And then Moses said, here's what I want to do. They can go into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with them. And this song we just heard reminded me, because Moses says, if you don't go with us, I'm not going. Because that's what makes us different from everyone else. What makes us different, what makes us different, what makes us a witness of Him is His presence in us in a tangible way. And worship is such an important part of that. All right. So we've been looking at this encounter now that God had, we had, we was in, he had it with, that, with the first people in the garden. He had it through Abraham with his people. And now we were looking at God with the children of Israel in the wilderness. And we saw that when he called them to come out of the wilderness and heard their cry, he told Moses, bring them out into this wilderness that they may worship me. He brought them to the base of this mountain. God came down on this mountain to reveal himself to them. And they, they, they ran away. Now what happens is, and now we're going to go to Exodus chapter, um, well, I'll walk you through this. Exodus chapter 19 is where that story is. Exodus 20, Moses is back up on the mountain and God gives him the Ten Commandments. I'm going to do it, oops, if I put my glasses on. There we go. Exodus Exodus 20 we see the people's reaction Exodus 21 God begins to give Moses instructions on the mountain there are a bunch of rules we're not going to go through them because they're not important for, they're important but they're not relevant to what we're talking about he gives them a series of rules for how they're to treat each other how they're to treat each other's property basically how they're to get along with each other um, then he gives them a system of feasts that they are to keep each year. And in chapter 24, God confirms this agreement. He has Moses uh, sacrifice some animals, take the blood, sprinkle the blood, and then they affirm their agreement with God, their consent to that. So God's confirming, their, that they're, they're confirming to God they're going to do what God's told them to do, and God's confirmed that He's going to take care of them. Then in chapter 24, and that's where we're going to go to, God calls Moses back up on the mountain. We'll pick up in verse 9. Then Moses went up also with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, those were Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone that was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand so that they saw God and they ate and drank. Now they're not at the top of the mountain, they're somewhere down the mountain. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up with me on the mountain and be there and I will give you tablets of stone with the laws of commandments which I have written that you may teach them. And Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here with us until we come back down. Indeed, Aaron and Ur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. And Moses went up on the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Just a little side note here. We get so, we're, we're so used to, to, to 
you know, if, if we need an answer to something, to pull out our phone or get out our iPad or our, you know, and I can get an instant answer. It was interesting being with our son, you know, we get into this question, you know, well, where did so and such and such come from? Pulls out his phone and in three seconds, he's got all of the information at the internet at his disposal to come up with an answer. The problem is that creates in us an expectation to get instant answers. And if we don't get an instant answer, we go to another page to find some other answer. Well, you don't contact God through a smartphone. God's smarter than, a smart, than your smartphone. And the result is what happens is we've lost so much of us, and especially not even in my generation. Our generation, which is, I guess, just about the older generation here, is, is, is even my generation is used to getting things quick, but not like the younger generation today is. And I've learned to pick up some of that impatience sometimes. You know, if we don't get an answer right away, we'll go to something else. We'll find an answer somewhere else. Notice how long Moses was on the mountain before God spoke? He's six days before he hears anything. Most of us wouldn't have lasted six hours, <laughs> maybe not even six minutes. I'm here, I'm doing what you said, all right, come on. I know the Patriots are on this afternoon, but there's some good game on, and i got to go to dinner, and I mean, come on, God. And I wonder, I get concerned for us whether we are capable of really hearing some things because whether we've lost the ability to wait. So many things that happened in the New Testament and some in the Old Testament happened while they were waiting on the Lord. To wait, you've got to sit still. And oh, that's hard in our flesh. It's hard to sit still and not be doing something. I, you know, I, I determined I wouldn't do this, but I have. When I got that first smartphone, because I'd see my kids do this. They'd sit there, you know, you know, watching TV or just talking to one another, and I find myself doing the same thing. I even caught my wife doing it the other day, <laughs> but not often. It's like it's so hard to just sit still and wait. We have to be doing something. Moses was six days before God spoke. Imagine if he got impatient after five and came down. So that's it. I guess God didn't hear it from God. But he waited. Listen to me. He waited until he heard. He waited until he heard because God said, come up to the mountain for there are things I want to show you or tell you. All right. That's just a little side one. Okay. Now notice what happens. The glory rested, verse 16, the cloud for six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Look what happens, verse 17. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. I guarantee you in that moment, Moses didn't regret the, the six days he waited. It was a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the, children of, in the eyes of the children of Israel. So it looked to them like it was a consuming fire, but Moses was drawn into it. So Moses went into the middle of the cloud and went up into the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now what happens there? We get, in chapter 25, we're going to get an insight 
into what went on in that meeting between Moses and God on the top of the mountain with the glory of God. That's what Moses was enveloped with, the glory of God. The children of Israel were seeing lightning and thundering. Verse 20, chapter 25. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering. Oh, God's going to ask for an offering right up front. From everyone who gives it willingly. God doesn't turn people upside down and shake money out of them. This is why I've told my staff, don't ever use the word collection. That's what the government does with your taxes. They collect them from you because they don't trust you to give them. But this is a relationship with God. He entrusts us with the finances with we have so that we can willingly give back to Him. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, so shall you take my offering. Now we're going to see there's a purpose for this. And this is the offering which you shall take for them, gold, silver, and bronze. Now where did that gold, this was not my message either, but where did the gold, silver, and bronze come from? I mean, they're in the wilderness. Well, if you go back and study when they, were, when they left Egypt, they left under such a rush that the women, the Egyptian women, took their jewelry and literally some translation said, threw it at them. Some translation says the Israelites plundered Egypt. So the, the world, which is what Egypt represents, took what they had and they were so glad for them to leave, they threw their jewelry, their gold, their silver, their, 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 their precious gems, they threw them at them. That's where they got them from. Because they'd spent some 400 years in bondage as slaves. And slaves don't collect bling. <laughs> the silvery, shiny stuff. It was given to them when they left, but it was given to them for a purpose. And this was the purpose. Because they're going to use this gold and silver and precious stones to build something for God. Verse 4, purple, blue, scarlet, threads. This is precious materials. Ram skins dyed red. Badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices and anointing oil for the sweet incense. Onyx stones. It goes down through the... But look at verse 8. This is why, verse 8. Let them make for me a sanctuary. The word is a tabernacle. That I may dwell among them. This is what we're talking about. In the garden, God's passion. He created this man and woman so that He would have someone to dwell with, someone to pour His love out because the kind of love that God has cannot be kept to itself. It's only enjoyed as it's given. It's only enjoyed as it's focused on someone, as it's blessing, as it's giving, as it's loving, as it's caring for, as it's protecting. And that's why God made this man to enjoy and this woman to enjoy. But their sin, their rebellion against Him created this enormous enormous separation and now God still hasn't lost the desire God still hasn't lost his passion God still has welled up within him that desire, that passion that he had when he created him to begin with but he's got this gulf, this problem this enormous separation that can't be bridged because if God steps over it a holy God is going to step in the midst of a sinful people and they'll die and that's hard for us to grasp. 
but what it's like, the best thing I can, example I can give to you is something you have in your house. It's called light switches. You all have them, don't you? Except there's some modern houses, they don't even use that. They just have light sensors when you walk in. I walked in a, a men's room the other day and the light just went on. It's like, I didn't do anything. The light went on. It senses your presence in there. And oh, that we would sense God's presence like that and the light would go on, I guarantee you. But see, the switch is sensitive. That's why. All right, we better not go that way. All right, where was I? Okay. And so, so in your house, you have light switches. And if you get up in the middle of the night and it's dark and you want to go to the bathroom or the kitchen or something like that, you walk into the kitchen and you turn on the light switch and what happens to the darkness when you turn on the light switch? It disappears, doesn't it? Because the light is a more powerful force than darkness. And spiritual light is infinitely more powerful than spiritual darkness. This is why John chapter 1 refers to Jesus as light come into the world and it says the darkness could not overcome his light. He came into a world of darkness but the darkness didn't overcome his light. Instead his light began to permeate the darkness because it is a more powerful force. The same is true of holiness and righteousness. So just as you can't have light and darkness dwelling together, the more powerful one will overcome the weaker one. In the same way, it's true with holiness and sin. They cannot dwell together. One of them has to win, and holiness always will win because it's the infinitely more powerful. Now, when the darkness goes out, it disappears. When sin comes into the presence of holiness, it's judged. And the judgment for sin is death, which is why you can begin to understand what happened to Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit about what they'd given. They died on the spot because the holiness of God was in that place. So if God reaches out to touch his sinful man and to embrace him, He's going to destroy him because the sin in him will be judged by God's holiness. So God has a problem. He wants to embrace his man and receive his man, but the sin of man, the rebellion, the pride, all the stuff you and I still deal with in our flesh, that stuff separated this God who wanted still... See, when man sinned, God didn't reject him. In fact, if you read in Genesis 3, God had to kick them out of the garden for their protection. Because he said, if I let them in there, they may eat of the other tree, which is the tree of eternal life. And if they eat of that tree, they're going to live forever. I was meditating on that one day. He says, God, why that tree? What's the problem if they eat of that tree? He says, because what's the Bible say? The wages of sin is what? Death. So in order to redeem man, I had to die in his place. But if man ate of that tree and live forever, he was not capable of dying, therefore I could not have died in his place, and he would have lived eternally in his sin. Well, look at the angels. They can't die. 
One third of them rebelled against God and he cannot redeem them. He can't die in their place. So the one third that rebelled are reserved in hell right now until that final battle because those are the demons and then there's the demons of which originally were the angels that rebelled. So God evicted them out of the garden for their protection and for our protection to preserve a way to bring them back to Him. And if you learn to read the Old Testament with that view, you'll have a better understanding of the God that did some of the things that He did. There's a book, I think we have in our bookstore, I'm sorry about this, I didn't warn you ahead of time, called The Scarlet Thread. And it talks about that. It helps you understand some of the things that God did. All right. So, so God has this problem which He wants to be among His people. So we're looking at now what God's about to construct here is known as the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness. And this is the next level of God being among His people. So we've seen God having a people that belong to Him and these are the people. But He couldn't walk among them. He couldn't physically be there. So now he's brought them out of Egypt to come into this promise, into a land that he's giving, giving to them so that he can dwell among them. But in order to do that, God has to have Moses construct this thing called the tabernacle. The word tabernacle means a dwelling place. And so the New King James uses this term here, sanctuary. We call this the sanctuary, but it's a dwelling place. It's a place where you sanct, <laughs> where you dwell. But notice verse 8. Let them make for me a sanctuary. This is God's idea. And all the things we're going to study over this week and maybe next week are looking at what God told them to do for the sole purpose that God could be among them. Let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. In other words, they couldn't do this any way they wanted to. God didn't just say, hey, look, Moses, build a nice place for me to live in. When you're done, I'll come down. No, it had to be done precisely the way God said. Why? Because the purpose of this was twofold. One was to protect them so when God came down, they would live. And the other purpose, which we don't have the time to get into in this, in what we're talking about today, is was it was to train them and prepare them for the Messiah when He came so that they could recognize what His purpose was. The interesting thing is the school of ministry that's going on right now, one of the courses that's being given is on the tabernacle, and the main thrust of that course is really that second lesson. And I have, there's a book that I've got in the bookstore that I wrote about the tabernacle, and it really shows you how it is a training for the preparation of the coming of Christ. But we're looking at this from the point of view of God's doing this so that He can dwell among His people. All right, let's begin to talk about this a little bit. So it is designed, um, and what I'm going to do now, if I can get this going... Okay, if you can turn that on. All right. See if we can get this. All right. If you can bring the lights down just a little bit. God is giving Moses instructions of what he wants him to build for him. 
And it's a series of barriers. First of all, this is to be placed in the middle of the camp. Now, I'm going to show you several pictures or renderings. Obviously, we don't have any real pictures because <laughs> this was thousands of years ago. And what we're going to look at is man's best idea by reading through the scriptures. Now, about the second week of December, third week of December, you're going to begin to see some tabernacles show up out in the foyer because the students, when they finish, they, they, part of their assignment is to build one of these things in some way, whether it's by drawing or by model. And that's one way of learning what's in there. But this is, just gives you an idea. This was placed in the middle of the camp when they were still, when they were settled. And it consists of an outer barrier which you can see, let me go to the next one, see if you can see it a little better there. Okay, see that white sheet that's going around the four sides of that? Those are made of linen, and each of the materials of which this tabernacle and the courtyard is made has a symbol, means something, which we're not going to take the time to go into because it's not really important for what we're talking about right now. It's more important for the study of how this shows you about Christ. But I want you to get a visual image that this was a, consisted of a, 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 a white linen fence that surrounded the whole thing, and the, the tribes were camped on all four sides. And God, in Numbers, you'll see where God tells them exactly what order to camp in. Now, the, the, um, the, open, the, the side that's at the bottom there, which is a different color. You'll notice it's different colors, whereas the rest of it's white. The white that you see around there was linen sheet, and it was hung over poles between these pillars, which were bronze pillars that went all the way around. And the idea, this all represents something, that white represents human flesh. It represents our humanity. And what this is showing is God was creating a place here that was outside of humanity, but it was among the humans. And there was something that was to separate him and what went on there from the rest of the camp. And the first thing that they ran into was this white linen curtain, which was a reminder to them they couldn't just walk in there. So you and I can walk into church anytime we want. They couldn't walk. In fact, the, the average person couldn't walk in there at all. The only ones that could go in there were the priest, his sons, Moses, and the Levites, who were the tribe that God called to serve him in this function. Nobody else could go in there. Only the people that God had ordained for service for him. And those people had no inheritance in the land. They didn't have regular homes. They didn't have their own cities. Their whole, they were belonged to God. They were called by God as his, his firstborn. And so the first, the first thing that you see is this outer wall, which isn't a wall at all. It's a, it's a flimsy a uh, uh, curtain. And if you wanted to push through it, you could have. Of course, you would have died, but you could have pushed through it. The other thing to notice about it is look at the ground. The ground on the inside is the same as on the outside. It's dirt. So this is just basically a, a fence, a, a linen fence that's erected in a rectangle with, with, with uh, um, and I'll give you the dimensions. Well, I can give them to you now. Not that it matters. But it's 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. And the floor is dirt, just like the dirt that's on the outside. And another significant thing about it is that it's open to the sky. 
So birds could fly over and see what's going on in there. The weather affected what was going on in there. And so it was open to everything. The linen curtain represents our human flesh. And what goes on inside of this uh, represents, the, uh, it represents the barrier of man from what God is doing. Okay. The gate, the thing that you see at the bottom, is actually a... Uh, see if the other one showed it any better. No, not really. Is actually an, another curtain that was a little bit in front of it, most likely. Now, the, there's not enough details, which you'll see when you look at the tabernacles that our students do. They're, they'll all look different because there's not enough detail in there to tell us every little thing. But most likely that first one was, a, it's called a veil, and it was a little bit in front so that you could wa- had to walk behind it. It was enough so that you couldn't stand outside and see through it, but you could walk around it. And what would happen is the, the people, when it came time to, for sacrifices for their sins, they would bring whatever the appropriate animal was, or bird or animal, they would bring it to that outer gate. A priest would meet them there and inspect it and make sure that it was the right kind of animal for the right kind of sacrifice. All right? The gate there was to face east. And this becomes one of the reasons I'm going to go through this is some of the things we'll look at later on when you see Psalms that talk about worship, you'll see things that are references to this. And if you don't have this background, it helps, at least it helps to have this background. I will enter into his gates with thanksgiving in my heart, into his courts with praise. So we're going to see what goes on outside in the courtyard represents praise. But what goes on inside that other tent? is something different. Now what would happen is the next thing that you see inside of there, see if it's, well it's still better here, it's still better over here. That first thing you see with the smoke going up, that's called the brazen or brass altar. It was made of acacia wood, which was a wood particular, particular to that area of the world that was very light, but was impervious to insects, so it would last. And it was to be covered with bronze over the outside. I'm told, and I didn't research this myself, but when I went to school, I was told that what they've discovered is that that type of wood covered with bronze makes an incredible insulator. And the reason that's important is because what goes on inside of that, that's basically a pit. In fact, some translations called it the brazen pit. And it was a pit that was square. And, and there was a grating around the side where the priest could stand. And when you brought your animal, they would inspect it at the gate, at the veil, and they would take it at the appropriate time, because there were different types of sacrifice, which we're not going to go into, and they would put the animal or the part that was to be sacrificed into this pit. Now, it had a fire that was going on in there 24 hours a day, while they were camped, because you understand that they were camped for periods of time, and then they would be moving periods of time. And we may talk about that later on. So while they were in camp, this fire is going 24 hours a day. It's estimated, and there are animals being burned on it 24 hours a day. It's estimated that the temperature in there was somewhere around 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And because of the way it's built, the heat and the smoke goes up, not out. 
Now, this has several reasons. This represents the cross and what Christ did for us and for them, was going to do for them on the cross. It was a place of terrible suffering. It was a place that was not pleasant to be around. It was a place of intense heat and destruction. And the intensity of what went on in that cross is so bad that Isaiah's description is his face was so marred that it could hardly be recognized as human. The suffering that Jesus went through on that cross was so intense that in all likelihood he died from his heart bursting, not from normal reasons. If you study out the method of crucifixion, you'll discover that, that typically they lasted on that cross for three days or more. And I don't want to go through the process of what it was, but it's still probably one of the most cruelest methods of execution that man has ever come up with. And it was only used in special cases by the Romans because it was so feared. It was, such, it was used for traitors and murderers. And so, it, but, in, but in Christ's case, because the sin was placed on him, and because he was separated from the Father's presence for the first time, the agony that he went through was so intense that his heart burst. If you remember the study of the Passion, when they came, it was the Passover. It was the evening of the Passover, so they, they decided that they didn't bring them down off the cross. So what did they have to do with the thieves? They had to break their legs. Because the process of dying was a constant process. You, on the cross, you died from suffocation. Because what happened is hanging there, eventually your muscles in your chest got so tired that you couldn't take a deep breath. And so what would happen is to relieve that, you would go to stand up. And when you went to stand up, the nails in your feet were so excruciating, you'd collapse again. So it was this constant process of pain and relief and pain and relief. And it would take days sometimes for them to die. So the way they made sure that the, that the thieves died is they broke their legs so they couldn't stand up anymore, and they died very quickly. Remember when they came to Jesus? He was already dead, wasn't he? And when they pierced his side, water and blood came out, which I'm told indicates that the heart sack must have already broken because the fluid that's around it came out first. But the point is the intensity of what he went through, and this represents that. So when the work in the, in the tabernacle is the first thing is the animal, before anything could be done in there, their sin had to be paid for. Their sin had to be paid for. So the first thing they ran into is this altar. Now it also was a constant reminder, and if you look through Hebrews 8 and 9 and 10, you'll see references back to this. And if you've never studied this before, it will give you an, an understanding of it. If you look back on this, what you'll see is that, is that, um, that in, when they were in camp, you knew that this was going on. Because if you've ever smelled animal flesh burn, you, it is a distinctive odor to it. And they could tell, and what that meant is they knew 24 hours a day when they woke up, when they went to bed, when they got up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom, whenever they did, they, their nose told them, that their sins were still being paid for. It was never taken away because as Hebrews says, the blood and the, the flesh of bulls and goats could never take away the sin. It just covered it over. So this was a constant reminder to them that they always fell short. 
the next thing that you see, the next path that the, that the priest went on, is he went to there, put the animal there, then you'll see behind it, there's a little round thing with it's blue in the middle. That's called a laver. And the laver was also made of this wood covered with bronze. By the way, bronze in the Bible in the Old Testament represents sin that's judged. Remember when the, the children of Israel were complaining against God and serpents come among them, fiery serpents, which are poisonous snakes, break out among them? I don't believe God sent the snakes. It was their sin manifested because snakes represent sin in the Bible. And, 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 and what Moses cries out to God and says, you know, please forgive us, performs a sacrifice to atone for their sin. And God says, here's what you're going to do. I'm not going to take the snakes away. What I'm going to do is I want you to take, make a brass image of a snake and put it on a pole and lift it up. And when somebody gets bitten with a poisonous snake, if they'll look at that brass serpent, then they'll be healed. And then Jesus in John chapter 3 says that brass serpent was a representative of a type of what he was doing because the brass represented their sin that was judged put up on a pole. And so brass represents sin that's judged so that everything, the implements in the courtyard have to do with the judgment or the penalty for their sin. And so this laver is a, is a bowl made of brass that's filled with water. And there's a lower bowl or something because the priests have to wash their feet and their hands because you can imagine when you're dealing with some of the sacrifices that they had to deal with. I mean, again, I don't want to gross you out. But they had to, some of them they had to take the fat and pour it on there. Some of it they had to take the intestines and put them on there. It was messy. It was blood. There was blood everywhere. You walked into that courtyard, you, need, you knew something had died. There was blood everywhere. And our salvation required blood to go everywhere. And aren't you glad the song we sing is still true today? that the blood still has its power. It reaches to the highest mountain. It goes to the lowest valley. I can bring it back, don't worry. It went off. It goes to the lowest valley. That blood still has power today. Why? Because it's not the blood of bulls and goats. That blood's long gone. But it's the blood of Christ. And the reason the blood is so significant is because Leviticus, I think it's 17, says that the life is in the blood. So what the blood represents of these animals, what the blood represents of Christ is their life. It's the life of animals that was given up. And the blood is the proof that the life was given up. The blood of Christ, the blood that cleanses, the blood that saves us, the blood that keeps us and protects us and saves us today is the life of Christ that was given up for us. So this laver, this laver is a, is a bowl with water in it, and the inside of it is laid with glass. Glass, mirrors that had been taken from the women. Let's see if I can bring this up again. Yeah, that had been taken from the women. And, and, and what it did is when they looked, the water represents the Word in the Bible. It can represent the Holy Spirit too, but it represents the Word. So what they've done is they've come past the altar where their sins were paid for, and now they're coming to be prepared to go into this inner tent. And they're coming to a bowl that's filled with water 
to wash off of their hands the dirt and the fat and the, everything that splattered on them and to wash their feet because their hands represented service and their feet represented their walk before God, their life, the way they conducted themselves. Now this isn't in my notes for the translators, but that's okay. We're going to go right now over to over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's hard for me to get into this and not get into some of these side issues because they are life-changing. Second Corinthians chapter 4, excuse me, 3. Um, right before the verse we're going to look at, which is um, verse 17, it's talking about Moses on the mountain that we're looking at. When Moses came down off the mountain, he'd been in the presence of God for 40 days. And the life of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God, the power of God was so powerful that it permeated his flesh and his clothes. So that when he came down off the mountain, his face was shining and his clothes were shining so brightly that people couldn't stand up when they came into his presence. So the glory of God had, had, had permeated his clothes so that when he came, people were feeling the effect of God's holiness and righteousness even though God was still up on the mountain. But after a few days, the power, because it wasn't coming from within him, began to fade away. It's kind of like they used to have watches, I don't know if they still do, with luminescent dials, where they had a paint on there that during the day it would absorb the light that was in your house or in the outside, and when you go to bed at night, you turn it off and you could see the numbers in the hands, but by two or three in the morning, you couldn't see anything because the power wasn't inside. The power wasn't inside. Now, I've got a watch that's different. It's not this one. That What it does is it's a solar battery so that it's absorbing the light. And then what happens is that, that, that at night, even at four in the morning, I can still read the dial. Why? Because there's a power source inside that's giving light to it. And so Moses came down off the mountain and this power was the the holiness was not in him, so it because the source wasn't in him, the source was still on the mountain, it began to fade away. Now it's interesting, you go to Hebrews chapter one, verse three, talking about Jesus. It says he is the outshining of the Father's glory. That word does not mean the same thing as Moses here. It doesn't mean that he absorbed the power. And that it doesn't mean that that, that it doesn't mean that that, that he's the, um, that it's reflected off of him like the sun's reflected off the moon. It means the power was coming out of him. But here with Moses, it's comparing the glory that Moses was experiencing, which was a reflect, which was an absorbed glory that faded, with the glory that we have because we have God's presence in us. All right, let's read here. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, where it, by the way, where is the Spirit of the Lord? He's in you. Yeah. He's in me. 
See, we're, what we're going to learn is the, God's tabernacle now is not in a tent like this. God's tabernacle now is in you and me. So the glory that was going to be in this tabernacle we're going to look at is now in you and me, which is why the glory that's in us, in the church, is different than the glory that Moses was exposed to. It wasn't in him, he was exposed to it. So now the Spirit of the Lord, with the Spirit of the Lord there is liberty, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, remember we're talking about the laver, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, the same, same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Are you with me so far? Go to James chapter 1. Verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. So James is comparing the word to a mirror. Now, most of you, I suspect, looked in a mirror at some point this morning to make sure everything was where it was supposed to be and looked the way you wanted to look before you came out and came in here. Some of us had to look more than others, but we did. And in every case, whether we like it or not, the image that that mirror showed back to you was the exact image you put in front of it. So if you didn't like what you saw, it wasn't the mirror's fault, it's what you put, the mirror will show you what you put in front of it. A mirror can only reflect back to you what you give it to reflect back. But James is saying the Word of God is also a mirror. And when you look in this mirror, it's different than the mirror in your bedroom or your bathroom or your living room. Because this mirror contains the image of you that God has made of you. This image contains who you are on the inside. The mirror in your bathroom contains the image of who you are on the outside. But this mirror contains an image of who you are on the inside. And when you look, James is saying, when you look at the mirror in your bedroom and you walk away, eventually you forget what that looked like. Because all it does is show you what you put in front of it. But the mirror of God's Word, going back to 2 Corinthians, look at the next verse. But with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What that is saying to you is when you look in this Word, when you look at who you are according to this Word, 
When you look into this word that says that Jesus took your sins, when Jesus paid for your sins, this word that says He took your sin and gave you His righteousness so that God sees you as the righteousness of God. God looks at you and sees His child, His son. In that mirror in your bathroom, it may be the son of James or Fred or Mary or whatever it was, but in this image, it is the son of the living God that's in this image of who you are. And James is telling us, together with Paul in 2 Corinthians, is when you look in this mirror, this mirror has the power to change who you are into the image of the mirror. Whereas your bathroom mirror can't change anything. And sometimes we spend more time looking in the bathroom mirror than we do in this mirror. That's why we need to spend more time with our face in this book than in Facebook. So the laver represents this. The laver represents the priests looking down through the water which represents the Word. And the mirrors in the base of it reflected back to them what they put in front of it, but it reflected it back through the washing of the water of the Word. Each step of this is a preparation for going inside the other the tent that you see at the back in order to approach it you had to first of all be cleansed of your sins to have the confidence to go where it is you have to realize what was done for you at the brazen altar in order to have the confidence to come in to what we're going to see next time goes on inside that tent. And the reason more of us don't experience more in worship is because we don't have confidence in ourselves because we know ourselves. Why would God want to hear from me? Why would God want to hear my prayers? Why would God it matter to God when I come and tell you I love you? I know myself. I know I'm not always thinking Him all the time. I'm not spending all my day going, Lord, I love you. I just and so and love you. There are times, there are days where I go through. I started in the morning, but then I may get distracted and remember later at night. And then when I remember later, oh God, I didn't do what I said I was going to do. I was going to think of you most of the day. I was going to talk to you throughout the day and I forgot. And it's just, oh my God, you know. But that's looking at myself at the doorway. But Christ paid for me. So I can come with my weaknesses and my failures and my faults. And I can come to Him. But before I have confidence to come to Him, I have to renew my mind to what His Word says, how He sees me. And that is done through the washing of the water of the Word by spending time in this book, especially the New Testament, especially the letters 
because the letters are written to the church about who we are. Who we are in Christ. What He has done for us. Not what He will do. Hebrews. Such an important book. Because it talks about this. And with some of this teaching now, you'll have a better understanding about what Hebrews is about. We have to have confidence to come to Him. The confidence comes through believing by faith in what God has done for us. Not by our feelings. We're ruled too much by our feelings. We're ruled too much by how we think we are, what our evaluation of ourselves is. We're ruled too much by, by how our bodies feel and what we think about ourselves and our own evaluation instead of being ruled by what God says about us, renewing our minds to who He says. Do you understand what Christ did for you and me on that cross? He's removed guilt. He's removed all reason to have a sense of guilt. Now, obviously, if you do something wrong, your conscience will prick you, and that's why you need to repent of it and ask God to forgive you. But it doesn't change that you're still His child. We have four children. I don't think any of them are here right now. We have four children. They don't always do everything we want them to do. But they're always our children. And there have been times each one of them has gone through some period where they were doing things we just didn't want them doing. They weren't where we thought they ought to be. But they're still our children. They came from us. We cannot deny that. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, if, you remain, if you're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. The cross paid for your sin so that you could come and worship him in spirit and in truth. The word of God is given to us so that we can renew our mind and this is why you've got to go over it and over it and over it and over again. See, they had to go through this daily. Go wash up again. Remember in John 13 where Jesus washes the disciples' feet? And I'm so glad for Peter because if it weren't for Peter, we wouldn't know this one thing. Jesus comes to Peter. And Peter says, oh. Lord, I'm too humble. I'm too dirty. I'm too beneath you to wash my feet. See, Jesus didn't put up with that, that false humility. He says, all right, if you don't let me wash you, you have no place with me. And that's true for all of us. If we don't let Him wash us, if we don't let His blood cleanse us, instead of trying to do it ourselves, we can't be with Him because we can't wash ourselves enough. And Peter says, all right. Then give me a bath all over. And Jesus says, no, no. Once I've cleansed you, you don't need a whole bath again. Once you've received Christ, you don't have to get cleansed up all over again. But he said, but I do have to wash your feet. Because what the feet represent is where we've walked and what we've done. And the course of walking around in those streets in those days, because they wore moccasins, they wore sandals, their feet would get dirty. And he said, what I need to do is I need to periodically cleanse your feet from the dirt that you've picked up 
by walking around in this world, but I don't need to give you a bath all over again. Because I did it once and for all. So the brazen altar, the brass altar, was there because they couldn't even do anything until their sins were paid for. Then they went to this laver to get washed and cleansed from what they'd just gone through so they could have confidence to go in to this tent we're going to look at next week, which is actually what the tabernacle is. All of this is so God could make a way so that they could come and be with Him. And He could, as we saw in Exodus, He could come, Moses, build a sanctuary for me. Build a dwelling place so I can come and satisfy the desire of my heart and dwell among my people that I have made for myself. How much more does he want to come and be in the presence of his children that he died in order to redeem, to make his own? How much more the Father desires such to worship? The Father desires our worship. And boy, as we begin to step more and more into it, He's going to open up His heart and pour out on us things you can't begin to believe and imagine now. Let's pray. Father, indeed, as Your Word says, You have things for us that our eyes have not seen and our ears have not heard not even entered our hearts to imagine things that you would have do for us and want for us. But we thank you for your precious Holy Spirit who you've given to us to do just that. Father, we ask you now to take by the Holy Spirit what we've heard today and what we've seen today, not so much with our eyes, but we've seen with our hearts. And Holy Spirit, Breathe on it. Breathe on it the breath of life. Begin to teach us and show us in our own lives how these things apply to us so that we may have confidence and boldness to come to a throne of mercy and grace to find help in time of need. For that we thank you, Father, in advance. In Jesus' name.